Good evening, everybody, and to, uh, good, welcome to all those also watching on live stream. Thank you for coming out tonight. This is the, our first of the uh, Vespers and Speakers series that we, we have. We've been doing this for four years. So tonight and the next four Wednesdays, we'll be having Vespers, Benediction, and then with a, with a speaker. The speaker has been arranged for us by uh, St. Joseph Evangelization Network, as they have for the last four years. As a matter of fact, the first year we did this, 2017, it was such a big success, we continued doing speakers every Wednesday since then. So four years we've been, we've been doing that. So with that, our speaker tonight is uh, Mr. Fred Vilbig. Uh, Fred is a native of Texas. He graduated from the University of Dallas with a degree in the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and from St. Louis University uh, School of Law. He's a Clayton, Missouri-based estate planning attorney and president of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, St. Thomas More Society. Fred has hosted numerous interviews with subject matter experts for St. Joseph Radio, now St. Joseph Evangelization Network, many of which can be found on their website at sgn.tv. Uh, Fred is also a seasoned Lenten speaker for St. Joseph uh, Radio, and I can attest to that. I think uh, I said we started this four years ago, and I think Fred was our very first speaker and other than uh, Monsignor Eugene Morris and our, our own uh, pastor, uh, Father Skillman, Fred is the only repeat speaker we've had, so yeah, you're, in, you're in good company. Uh, Fred and his wife, Diane, are the parents of 11 children and parishioners of Holy Infant Parish in Baldwin, Missouri. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Fred Vilbig. Good evening. I assume you're here because you get some sort of a, a dispensation of some sort for the suffering that you'll have to put up with. So um, I have a confession I need to start with. I didn't go to high school in St. Louis. I'm I like, uh, as I was introduced, I'm originally from Dallas and uh, I was surrounded by a uh, very Protestant milieu. It was a uh, a lot of Southern Baptists and then Methodists and then there's a smattering of, of others. Um, I was the only Catholic in my grade. Oh, and I have another confession. I went to public school. And uh, my kids, who all went to Catholic school, they would refer to people who went to public school as publics. So I think it's very ecumenical of Father Skillman to allow a public to come and speak. So I, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, but anyway, so um, when I was growing up, I was surrounded by uh, predominantly Southern Baptists, and they were uh, 
you know, they would always tell me I was going to go to hell because I was a Catholic. And I don't remember Father saying that in Mass on Sunday, so I was a little confused. Uh, but when I got into high school, it was really very interesting. Mondays were lots of fun because the girls seemed to be very concerned about my eternal salvation. And so they would come to me Monday morning and say, uh, you know, how can you be a Catholic? You know, and, I, and I'd always know that there was some interesting bit of information I was going to learn. And they would say, and I'd say, okay, what did you hear? And they said, well, a uh, pastor this weekend said that Catholics, and he, she always, they always had, you know, different things. You know, and one of my favorites was that the priest, you know, slept with the wife the first on the wedding night. And I told her, this one girl, I said, well, isn't that a reason to be a Catholic priest? And she did not like that response. She thought that was maybe not the appropriate response. But um, so the thing was, they would ask me all kinds of questions, you know, about why do Catholics believe this and why do Catholics believe that? And, you know, there I was, a 15, 16-year-old um, guy, and, you know, I really didn't know that much. Uh, I was a, a Vatican II child, so I really hadn't been catechized very well. Um, but one of the questions that I got asked a lot was, why do you have a crucifix in a church? Every Catholic church you go into, there is a crucifix. Now, in some of the more modern churches, you might see some abstract representation of a crucifix, but it is a crucified Christ that's up there. And I didn't really have an answer. Their question was, why do you have a crucified Christ up there? Because don't you realize, or don't you Catholics realize, that Jesus rose from the dead? He's not on the cross. And I think that raises a very interesting question for us as Catholics. Why is there a crucifix with the body of Christ on it in every Catholic church. Now, I, your, um, your crucifix is, it's a beautiful crucifix. I'd like to suggest though that it isn't terribly realistic because a crucifixion was a much, much worse way of dying. It always looks, uh, I, and there are all kinds of crucifixes like this, it always looks kind of like Jesus is sort of resting there um, he really would have been stretched out and you died from suffocation. And it's a very painful thing. You would you know, push up with your feet, which were nailed. You'd push up with your feet to try to get oxygen. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. And uh, there's a woman in our parish, we were talking, and she said her daughter didn't want to go to church because of that man up there on the cross. That little girl got it. I think a lot of us have sort of become numb to the whole idea of the crucifixion, but really it, it is, it's an it's a incredible thing that we have, uh, you know, as the center of our worship, yes, we have the Lord in the Eucharist, but the image is of Christ on the cross. But this is a very, very ancient tradition. The, um, uh, it goes all the way back to the very beginnings of Christianity. St. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 3.1, I, I love this. There are various translations of this, but uh, you know, one of them is, oh, you stupid Galatians. Another one is, oh, you ignorami. You know, just, he, he was really, really angry at them because they were, in a sense, denying the crucifixion of Christ. And they, his comment was, oh, you stupid Galatians in front of whom 
our Lord was portrayed as crucified. That's a reference to a crucifix in the church in Galatia. And so the crucifix has always been a center of our faith. In order to really understand the nature of the crucifixion of Jesus, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about the nature of God. If you've ever gone out in the country, I'm a, I, I love the nighttime sky. If you've ever gone out in the country on a moonless night, a clear night, and looked up at the stars, you'll see millions and millions of stars. And if you're lucky enough to see the Milky Way, the Milky Way, you know, it looks milky just because of all the stars that are in it. And you don't see but a fraction of the stars that are up there. There are billions and billions and billions of stars that are up there. And they have these beautiful colors. Many of the colors that you see from the Hubble telescope, those are really enhanced by, you know, you're looking at uh, infrared light that the human eye really doesn't pick up, you know, um, ultraviolet, you're looking at radio waves, but they, they bring out these colors that God has put there that we really can't even see. And I imagine that when we are in heaven, we will see all of these things. But it's this incredible creation that's out there. And I like to think God made that. He's all powerful. If you watch, I'm a, I get up early in the morning and I enjoy sunrises. Sunrises and sunsets are just, to me, stunningly beautiful. God is painting these beautiful pictures in the sky every night. Now, sometimes when it's cloudy, he hides it from you, but he is painting that picture up there every night, every morning and every night. Uh, so, I, uh, again, growing up in Texas, here in St. Louis, you know, out here, we have hills. And so I think you guys really are sort of deprived of uh, the real beauty of sunrises and sunsets. In Italy, they refer to a sunset as a tramonte, which means between the mountains, because they would see the sunset going down between the mountains. Well, in, in Dallas, the biggest elevation difference between the lowest point in the city and the highest point, I was told, was 50 feet. So Dallas is kind of flat. And if you get out of the city and you look west, it's this flat expanse. And when the sun goes down, the horizon is ablaze. Now, my mom, who was very you know, realistic, she said, well, you know that's because there's dust in the air. I don't care. It was just, it was beautiful, beautiful. God made that. God is all beautiful, and we know that because of nature. Uh, one other thing about sunrises and sunsets, you may be standing right next to somebody looking at a sunset. You will experience it in a unique way because you will be looking at one spot, and you know someone next to you may be looking at another spot. Someone 10 feet away may get a different light refraction, a different color. So God is making those beautiful images for you in particular to appreciate. God is all beautiful. And God existed before all things. He made everything. There is nothing that exists but for God willing it into existence. 
and nothing continues to exist but for Christ Jesus, through the word through whom all things were made, uh, willing it to continue to exist. So God is infinite. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God. He's infinite, all-powerful, and in, beautiful beyond anything that we can imagine. He dwells in a community of love, surrounded by a myriad of angels, praising and glorifying him. He wants for nothing. He has everything that he possibly could want. He emptied of himself of his divinity and became man. He was born of Mary and Joseph, born of Mary. Joseph was the foster father, I know. Um, born of Mary. They lived a very simple life. Uh, there is a book that was written in about the third or fourth century. It's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It was written by a group, a, a heretical a group in the church called Gnostics. And I won't get into all that. But anyway, so what they, what they said in this book was that when Jesus was a child in Nazareth, he performed street magic tricks, you know, and fascinated everybody. Um, that is not what happened. And the way that we know that is when Jesus went to Nazareth to preach, they all looked at him and said, who is it? this guy? He's, he's the carpenter's son. What, what is he doing? Where did he learn to do this stuff? What is this? They were totally surprised. So that Jesus, when he was growing up, he lived a very quiet, reserved life. When he spent, when he uh, went to, after he went to Cana and his mom, I love the story of the wedding feast at Cana. Uh, Jesus, they have no uh, wine. Mom, it's not my time. She doesn't even answer him. She just turns to the people and says, do whatever he says. He can't say no to his mom. I love that. Anyway, so Jesus, he went about preaching and healing people and performing miracles. And if you read, like, for instance, I, I believe it uh, was it the gospel this morning at Mass. It was where James, the mother of James and John, came and said, I want my sons to sit at your right and left hand. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. I can't grant that. They didn't get it. So Jesus spent three years with these men and the women going around, and they didn't get it. That must have been very frustrating for him. Um, at Caesarea Philippi, when he said, uh, you know, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of, you know, the Messiah. And, uh, and he said, you know, that's wonderful, Peter, you get it. And then he starts talking about, well, you know, I have to suffer and die. And Peter said, oh, never, we're never going to let you do that. They didn't get it. And Jesus was very emphatic about this. You know, he told Peter, get behind me, Satan, so that the cross is not an option. But what happened, Jesus, as God, emptied himself of his divinity, became one of us, lived among us, and must have been very he was very quiet and humble, but he must have been very frustrated in his teaching. And then he died a painful and humiliating death on a cross. So the suffering of Jesus, the, the love that he showed for us in giving up all of that to suffer and die on the cross is incredible. We can't even begin to imagine the glory and majesty of God, and yet he gave that up to be one of us and to suffer and die so that we could join him in heaven. 
The, uh, and to me, that is a true image of the holiness that you and I are called to. Uh, I looked in the catechism to try to find a definition of, the holy, of holiness. I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one specifically in the Bible. Um, there was a phrase in the catechism which suggested that the holiness of, of God is modeled in the life, the life, death, and suffering of Jesus. And that started me thinking that what Jesus did on the cross was incredibly selfless and it was out of love for us. And so I see that the, the holiness that we're all called to is a selfless love. And you might have noticed in our society that we don't have a lot of that. We have a lot of people who are very caught up in themselves. Be all that you can be, uh, you know, uh, have it your way, a couple of mottos. But, you know, our whole society seems to be focused around self-love. But what Jesus called us to is selfless love. And I believe that that's one of the reasons that we have Jesus uh, on, the, on the crucifix, on the cross, when you come to church to remind you that we are all called to that holiness, that selfless love. Now, Jesus was not, uh, you know, Lord, please forgive me if I'm being sacrilegious. Jesus was not a good marketer. He said, come follow me, and he went to the cross. Anybody in marketing will tell you that's really kind of a bad strategy for marketing purposes. But he was insistent, like I said, the cross is not an option for us as, as Christians. He said, come after me, come follow me. He said, take up your cross every day and follow me. It wasn't like it was an option. And like I said, at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter said, uh, no, no one should ever do that, he, he told him, get behind me, Satan. He, he was insistent that the cross was a part of what we are supposed to do every day. We're supposed to take it up. How do you do that? I wanted to, um, there's a magazine, and some of you may know it, it's uh, called the Magnificat, and it is, it's got uh, morning and evening prayer in it. It has the readings of the day and the prayers for Mass. Uh, it also has a, um, a little uh, reflection, and I think all of these are really good, but it also has a saint of the day. And these saints, they have, during a month, they have themes and things. Well, this month, the theme is saints who loved the passion of Christ. And so today uh, we learned about Marguerite, I'll call her Margaret, Bays, who was born in 1815 in western Switzerland. She was born in a little bitty town and it must have been up in the mountains and she was very, you know, the family was not terribly well off, they weren't necessarily poor, but it was a fairly large family Back then, not everybody made it to adulthood, and so she had a number of siblings who died. But she, and she, she was a seamstress. She did very well in school, but there weren't a lot of opportunities, like you know, going to college and things. And so she did very well in school, and she was a very devout, uh, faithful, practicing Catholic. But she was a seamstress, and so she'd get up in the morning and go to mass, and then afterwards she would go out and. Uh, do any sewing that people needed. She'd go house to house. Well, she was very devoted to taking care of the poor, 
and um, you know, would all of our extra time and money would be, you know, would be um, uh, given to service to the poor. But she um, she also had a an interesting family. Um, she had a um, a brother who had a child out of wedlock, who she took in and she raised and taught. He ended up marrying the woman, and the woman was virtually, was verbally abusive uh, to Marguerite. Uh, and Marguerite kept a cheerful, uh, a cheerful demeanor to her all the way through. Um, she nursed a sister who was also very belligerent towards her. She nursed a sister who was very ill and ended up dying as a result of, the, uh, of her condition. Um, she was misunderstood by friends and family, but she, she maintained that love of God all the way through. Uh, that is the kind of suffering that we are called to in taking up our cross. It might be just little things that happen to us on a day-to-day -day basis, but those are the, if you read um, St. Alphonsus Liguori, he talks about how the, uh, the daily sufferings that God gives us is, are so valuable if we just offer them up and unite them uh, to the cross, and I'll get to that in a second. She, um, Marguerite, also, um, she developed, I guess that's the right term, she began on Fridays to experience the passion, and she ended up at a certain point having the stigmata, and, uh, and ended up dying. She was really never left her little town. She never did anything monumental. She was just a very faithful, loving person. And she ended up dying. I believe she lived until she was, uh, till she was seven or 63 years old. And she was canonized in 2019 by Pope Francis. But that's the kind of suffering, that's the kind of cross that we individually are called to. I don't know that any of us are going to be you know, arrested and sent to prison, although sometimes looking at society, I kind of wonder where it's going. But I think that it's those small daily things that we suffer that we can offer up uh, on a daily basis through the morning offering and also through mass. So uh, Margaret, I think, is a good example of a, not necessarily a monumental saint, somebody who, like Thomas Aquinas, who wrote the Summa Theologica and other works, um, you know, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who helped to reestablish uh, monasticism, um, you know, uh, and, and many of the saints, Padre Pio, who became world famous, Mother Teresa, who also became world famous. Um, she was a very quiet saint and died almost in obscurity, and I think that we can all be called to that kind of holiness, that kind of, of suffering, uh, that cross. Now, there's another aspect. So, you know, the cross reminds us of the suffering that Christ endured for us. It's a message to us that we also are going to be called to suffering. But I think there's a third aspect to the cross of Christ. Um, when you were baptized, the theologians tell us that you, all of us, were baptized into the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is understood as the church, but when Jesus 
encountered Paul, he said on the road to, uh, on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with the church. It's as if we, when we are baptized, we are engrafted into the body of Christ. We become a member of Christ's body in a very real sense. Paul, throughout his epistles, teaches about how we are the body of Christ. And in this mystical way, we are somehow united to his body. I'm sure that we won't clearly understand this until the other side of death, but we are told and we believe that we are a part of Christ's body. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully man. So he suffered, he lived, suffered, and died as a man. But as God, everything that he did had eternal significance. In a sense, Jesus was both in time and out of time. God is not subject to time. Time is one of his creations. So he was exempt from time, outside of time. So when Jesus suffered and died, it was in a timeless way. And we have a sense of that because if you look at the book of Revelation, uh, Scott Hahn in his book, uh, The Lamb's Supper, talks about this and does a really good job explaining it. He, he explains that in heaven, there is a mass that is going on. And there are all kinds of clues in the, in the book of Revelation because, uh, in fact, that was a part of the beginning of his conversion. Uh, he, was, he started off, he was going to um, uh, go and learn all about the Catholic Church to destroy it. He was a Presbyterian, I believe, and he was, he was going to study the, the fathers of the church so that he could destroy the Catholics. He, he had this big mission. Well, he was at Duquesne University, and he wanted to say, what is this mass thing that these Catholics go to? And so he went down. They had a weekday mass, and it was in the basement. And he went down, and he sat in the back pew, and he watched. And as he watched it, he was stunned because he recognized, you know, he was a biblical scholar. He studied Greek, uh, you know, Aramaic. He brilliant, brilliant guy. Anyway, he watched the mass, and he was stunned because he saw in the mass what was going on in the Book of Revelation. He absolutely identified the mass as being what Saint John saw in the Book of Revelation in heaven. So the mass in a sense, is happening constantly, eternally in heaven. There's no time in heaven. It's eternal. We don't really understand that because we're locked in time, but Jesus is being sacrificed in heaven for the love of us every moment. And when we celebrate the Mass, we, through the words of the priest and through his, his consecrated hands, the priest is helping us to also be present in heaven at Calvary and at the Last Supper because Jesus is not subject to time. We enter into the eternal, that eternal now, that eternal moment. We enter into it. We are truly present at Calvary. So when you come to Mass, you can unite Spiritually, you can unite your sufferings to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross.
by just making a prayer. You're no longer just a, a spectator. I think there are a lot of people that come to Mass and they're sort of spectators. They're watching, well, what is Father going to do now? You know, what are the altar boys going to do now? You can actually participate in the sacrifice of the Mass by offering your sufferings. Now, you might think, you know, I don't really, I don't really have any sufferings. You know, things are going pretty well for me. Whatever sufferings you have, <laughs> whatever suffering, I've got a story to tell about that. Whatever sufferings you have, offer them up because whatever sufferings God gives you, those are the ones that he wants you to, to offer up to him. Um, you might have significant sufferings. Uh, you might have lost a loved one. Uh, you might be suffering from disease. You might have uh, uh, a lot of pain in your life. Offer all of that up. Unite it to the suffering of Jesus on the, on the cross. There was a, a nun, um, she was uh, in the early 1900s, and I, I didn't write it down. Her name is Saint Rafka, and she was in Lebanon, and she uh, got into a teaching order, and she was teaching in this, uh, in this small town, and some marauding, non-Christian uh, uh, neighboring tribe came in and, you know, wiped out, you know, the, the place. She, she ran, she hit a a, one of the school children she hid in the folds of her her habit and they ran literally for their lives um, she uh, continued to teach for a little while and then she felt that she was called to a cloistered life and so she joined this cloister and things were just you know wonderful because she had all the time she wanted to pray well one night she was very aware of the connection between suffering the suffering of Christ and our suffering and one night at, when she was going to bed, she prayed. She said, Lord, you must not like me very much because I have nothing to really offer you suffering-wise. So the next night, she developed a severe pain in her, uh, above her eye. Uh, they took her to the doctor. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. She was having trouble seeing. One of her eyes was going very bad. The doctor said, well, maybe we remove the eye. So they removed that eye. After they did that, the other eye shriveled up. She was totally blind. And then the pain started spreading throughout her body. Be careful what you ask for. I'm just warning you. The pain spread throughout her body. She could barely move. She would crawl to chapel to say prayers. Um, and she rejoiced in this because she was uniting it to the suffering of Christ. I'm not saying that you guys are going to go to that extreme. I'm not sure that God, I'm, I'm not saying that God will call you to that. But I do want to say that whatever sufferings that God sends your way, offer them up to him, unite them to his sacrifice in the Mass. That, now I wish I would have known those things when I was 15, because when my Protestant friends said, why do you have a, a uh, the crucifix and not just an empty cross, I would have had an answer. But the cross of Christ, the crucifix, should remind us what we're called to, what God did for us, and the fact that we are uniting our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ. I wanted to, uh, that is the substance of my talk. I did want to uh, mention something. Um, I, it's an older group out here, so I, I, I assume a number of you have children. Uh, I've watched with great sadness 
as, uh, as some of my children have drifted away from the church. And I know I'm not alone. I was talking to someone just the other day, and uh, they said that it was the same with them. I think there are a lot of us who have seen, because of our society, the pressure that's on people, um, our, our families are drifting away from the church. But it's not just a family thing. It also involves society. I see society is drifting towards chaos. And the reason for all of this, as I mentioned earlier, we seem to be surrounded by this ethos, if you will, of self-love. That we are, you'll be happy, the idea is you'll be happy if you realize, uh, if you fully realize who you are. You should be all that you can be and then you will be happy. I think that's a lie. And the reason for that is if you and I were sufficient for our own happiness, solitary confinement wouldn't be cruel and unusual punishment. We are not sufficient for our own happiness. We have a hole in our heart caused by original sin, but we have a hole in our heart and we try all kinds of things to fill that hole. And all of the things, all of the solutions that society, that the world offers to us fail because none of them can fill that hole. Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, excuse me, wrote a, um, he was a, a priest, he was a, a professor uh, in one of the um, pontifical colleges over in Rome, a brilliant, brilliant man. He was uh, John Paul II's um, uh, doctoral uh, advisor and uh, j just a, a brilliant man. He wrote a book and in it it's, it's, he talks about the, the infinite nature of our soul. That, that hole that's missing, that hole, that thing that's missing cannot be filled by anything in this life. St. Catherine of Siena said the world is poor and her idea there was there's not enough of everything in the world to fill that hole to make us perfectly happy. And the reason for that is only God can make us happy. But our society, some of my children, probably some of your children, some of your friends reject God. They won't even hear of it. They think that it's superstitious, it's superstition. So how do you convince them? How do you bring them back to the faith? You can't force them back. That doesn't work. I think we've tried that in history and I don't think it works. I don't think you can argue them back into the faith. I'm a lawyer. I'm trained to argue. I know the philosophy, not all of it, but I know I've been trained in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. I've read extensively. I can discuss this with anybody and I think I've got very good reasons why faith is a real important thing. You can't argue them. You know, they, they have their set of beliefs and they are going to hold on to them. I, I argue that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because for an atheist, you have basically two propositions. One, either um, all matter just spontaneously came into existence there's nothing that indicates that that is possible. So you can discard that completely. And for a long time, atheists believe that, well, there was the Big Bang 
and things would expand, then they would slow down and they would contract back, collapse, and there would be another big bang. And so this would go on forever. Well, you might have heard of something called dark matter. The physicists, astrophysicists, have determined that actually, instead of the universe, gravity making the universe slow down in its expansion, it's accelerating. And they, have, they, they theorize that there's this stuff called dark matter that has anti-gravitational properties because this doesn't make sense. There was the Big Bang, and if you look at the velocity of things, there's no way that things can be where they are uh, given that velocity and the amount of time, the 10.4 billion years that we've had. And so they theorize that there was the Big Bang and there, were, there was the great inflation to get things basically where they are now and then they just expanded, but they continued to expand at a faster and faster rate, and eventually all of the nuclear material that is burning in our stars and our sun, it'll all burn out. And the, the universe will end up in cold and darkness, absolute cold, Kelvin zero degrees. And so the atheist has to somehow believe that matter came into existence on its own somehow. And that, to me, that's, that takes way more faith than I have. So our world, though, wants to tell us that believing is foolishness. And so you really can't argue your way into dis, uh, really displacing their, uh, their belief system. So in reading the saints, reading the catechism, reading the Bible, I realized that really we're, we're in a spiritual battle, a spiritual conflict. And the way that you fight that battle is through prayer, living your faith, holiness, and sacrifice, like what I was talking about. In talking at Holy Infant, we have a men's group, and, in and many of them, they actually went to Catholic school. <laughs> And so many of them, when I talk to them about these things, they're, they're interested because they don't remember ever hearing about this. And I think that there are a lot of Catholics who maybe were not uh, catechized about these kinds of things. So what I did was, and this was the result of uh, St. Joseph Radio. I'm, oh, there's Lou back there. It was St. Joseph Radio. I was asked to give a talk. Uh, maybe that was 15, 20 years ago. And it was on the battle for souls, which started me thinking about this, this whole topic. And the fruit of that was a book that I've written called Leave No Soul Behind. And in it, I make the argument that we need to, that you know, the world's a mess, the solutions of the world are not going to fix things. And I talk about what is involved in prayer, I talk about what is involved in holiness. I talk about what is involved in suffering. And uh, if, you're, if you're interested, uh, there, we'll have books back in the back. Um, we also have it for sale on Amazon. And what I'm trying to do is, in a sense, is to get an army of spiritual warriors fighting to save our families, our communities, even our society, because I see that we are going in the wrong direction. I'd like to thank you for your time tonight, and uh, God bless. Is there anything else we're supposed to do, Lou? Is that it? Okay, thank you for coming.